Get ready to step into scripture with Tina. Hey everyone, welcome to Step Into Scripture. My name is Tina Wilson. I'm a pastor's wife and a mom of seven. And alongside my husband, Matt, I've committed my life to serving King Jesus as a church planter, an author, a Bible teacher, and an advocate for all-in family ministry. I'm passionate about making Christ and his church famous, and I'm also passionate about seeing people connect with God through reading his entire word. And that's really the purpose of this podcast, is to help people make that commitment and thrive in that commitment. We just wrapped up season one, and in that season, we answered questions, objections that we had heard from people about why they don't think they need to read the entire Word of God, why that's not the best path to knowing God, that's not the most effective spiritual discipline, and we believe that it is. And so we answered those objections using Scripture. And in this season, we're answering all sorts of Bible questions that are submitted by listeners and viewers. And like in season one, we want to spend season two answering these questions as much as possible using just Scripture, possibly pulling in some historical references here and there. Okay. So in episode one, we answered the question, did God order genocide? And now in episode two, our next question that's been submitted by listeners and viewers is, are God's laws unjust? So while we're going to answer this question from scripture, we're also going to pull in a little bit of information about the context of the world when the Bible was being written down, because that helps us understand a fuller picture of the actual justice of God's full law. Sure. So that's where we're headed today. And Stacy, if you don't mind, go ahead and introduce yourself and bring in this idea of justice. I'm happy to. So my name is Stacy Vines. Tina and I have been stepping through scripture for quite some time together. Uh, like Tina, I am a homeschool mom. Uh, alongside my husband, we own small businesses and nonprofits here in our community. We've been a part of our home church, Ecclesia, from its conception. And one of the highlights of my life is walking through, we've led several uh, women's Bible studies, reading the Bible from start to finish. It's been sort of a banner in my life life and a marker of seasons in my life. So I'm thrilled to be a part of this podcast, stepping through scripture, waving the banner to read the entire Bible from start to finish with an open-ended commitment. And so today we're going to step through, like Tina introduced, the question of whether or not God's laws are just. And we're going to start by defining justice. And just as Tina said, we're going to allow scripture to interpret scripture and to define it. And so we're going to start by looking at justice, uh, beginning in Proverbs chapter 21, we're going to look specifically at verse 15 to get us started. When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. And so before we even get started in answering this question, we have a ton of scripture to step through today in order to come through lots of examples of, yeah. of when, when and where God catches a bad rap over his acts of justice. But to get us started... We're going to look at just that word justice and the two things that it will produce in our lives, one or the other. So just that word justice in the Hebrew there found in Proverbs 21:15 is mishpat, and it means decision or judgment. This justice is God's decision. This justice is God's judgment, and his decisions or judgments will either bring about joy in the heart of those who are seeking righteousness or terror in those who are wicked or who are evildoers. And so just to jump in, let's self-evaluate. 
when I reflect and look over God's acts of justice, his judgments and his decisions, his plan and his order, does it bring joy to me? Do I see that as a gift and, mm-hmm. and a vehicle to bring me into fellowship with him? Or does it make me uncomfortable? Does it offend me? Does it make me scared? Because then we can look at what we need to do in response to that. And that's where we're going to land by the time we're done with this podcast. God is the judge. He is the very definition of justice. You know, we really don't have the space to question God's plan or judgment because he is the one who has authored it. And so that same Hebrew word there that we talked through just now from Proverbs 21 is the same Hebrew word that's found in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy where God's law is really expanded. It's delivered and introduced. And then even where some of the examples of where God's justice offends people, where it brings about terror instead of joy. And so we look at that and we go, okay, God, that is your judgment. That is your decision. And we're going to step through some examples from those same books where that same Hebrew word is found. But to get us started, to lay a little bit of groundwork before we go through a couple of examples that are more specific, we just wanted to introduce some of the more well-known examples of God's law. Um, Some people call them the Big Ten. They are the Ten Commandments. And uh, many of you, even if you're listening for the very first time, you have heard of the Ten Commandments, right? So we're just going to lay those out really quick because this is a a quick snapshot of what God handed to the Israelites when he introduced the law. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make or worship any idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And you shall not want anything that belongs to your neighbor. And you should not want it for yourself. So there's the big 10, the 10 commandments. And I think it's a great way to open this podcast because it kind of puts us all on the same playing field. Yeah. Most people agree. They may not obey, but they agree with these uh, Ten Commandments as a good moral compass, right? This would be a, a if everyone followed this, we would have a pretty decent yes. society. So I think most people um, agree that these are, they, they tolerate these. Yeah. We may not obey them all, but most people agree that they are good um, at best. After God gives Moses these laws for the nation of Israel, he takes it even further and he gives them many more laws with very specific purposes. Things like how to handle personal injury, how to deal with lawsuits, how to deal with sexual immorality. And then he walks them through how to be a good and holy society with an ultimate overarching purpose that Tina is going to talk to us about in just a little bit. But in these more specific laws, this is where Bible skeptics can pull ideals and use them against the church, against God's moral authority, and try to paint them as demoralizing or belittling or ostracizing. And so, again, it does require the right context. It does require um, the right heart that's going to look at God's judgment and decisions and in hopes that you are looking for joy because you're seeking righteousness, as the writer of Proverbs said, and hopes and, and hoping that it doesn't offend you or put you on the offense. Yeah. 
But even if it does, there's something you can do about that. So to get us started uh, throughout this podcast, we're going to talk about two very specific examples of laws um, that have been used against God and weaponized against the church. And Tina's going to get us started with the very first one. So we're going to kick off by talking about slavery. This is discussed in the Old Testament. And like Stacy said, following the Ten Commandments, you get these very specific laws for several chapters. And here is one that I think people often isolate. Right. They read just a verse about slavery, and it becomes a weapon against God where his character is impugned, and unfairly so. Sure. Just like last week when we talked about people reading uh, isolated accounts and coming away with the idea that God orders genocide mm-hmm. rather than what we found in the whole of Scripture, which is that God has many times prevented man's attempts at genocide, right. and God only issues righteous judgment. Mm-hmm. So the Old Testament does talk about slavery, and I think the first question we need to ask is why. Sure. Why is that even in there? And the answer is because in the ancient world, slavery was everywhere. So when God was giving these inspired writings to Moses that were going to be written down and canonized so that we were still reading them today, Moses was was receiving these right. in the context of a society where everyone participated in slavery. Mm-hmm. Now, although people could become slaves as war captives, that was one way, slavery was primarily for Israel a matter of servitude to pay off debts. So a Hebrew person could indenture himself to another Hebrew person or sell himself into slavery to pay for a debt. And when we understand that, we get a different view of slavery. Mm -hmm. This was not something that was often practiced because someone was kidnapped and sold into slavery. Rather, it was kind of a form of credit. Mm -hmm. Back in these days, if someone needed to uh, pay off a debt, they couldn't get a credit card. They couldn't refinance or Mm -hmm. consolidate loans. They could sell themselves into service to another person, and, and that was what they did. That's common in the Hebrew culture in this day. But even then... They were never intended to stay enslaved perpetually. Right. They were to always be set free in the seventh year. That was also part of God's law, just right after the Ten Commandments in Exodus 21. Ten Commandments are given in Exodus 20. We read in verse 2, If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. Right. Now, we're going to circle back to this in a minute, but this is a picture of a much greater truth, this idea of no matter how great your debt was, you were set free in the seventh year. Right. Because essentially, that's what Jesus did for all of us. Mm-hmm. All of us have incurred a sin debt by sinning against God, and the debt is so big that it doesn't matter how much we work. That's we right. can never work it off, but Jesus came and canceled that debt even when we didn't deserve it. Right. So we're going to point out here that this same offer of freedom in the seventh year was not available to people outside the nation of Israel. And here's one reason why. Israelite slaves were set free in the seventh year because not just they were going to return to this freeborn status and a debt-free status, but also because they were going to reclaim whatever land Mm -hmm. they may have leveraged in paying off their debt. Right. At God's direction, Moses gave the land boundaries to each of the 12 tribes of Israel, what land was going to be their inheritance, and that was to be a perpetual inheritance. As a matter of fact, it should still be an inheritance today had Israel not broken covenant with God and lost that inheritance. And so in this year of setting free, 
they return to a freeborn status, their debts are canceled, and they also reclaim their land. Now, that's why foreign nations were not included in this seventh year freedom process because they didn't have an inheritance in the land. And if you would like to better understand the why behind that, you should go back and listen to last week's episode, Mm -hmm. the episode about did God order genocide, where we learned, in fact, he did not. You laid this out for us beautifully, Stacey. The, the nations, the people groups who were living in the land of Canaan that Israel was to inherit had engaged in centuries mm-hmm. of unrepentant sin. And it was right. because of that that they were taken out of that land. And so they could be owned as slaves perpetually. And ultimately, I think what we're seeing there is just an ongoing righteous judgment from God. Right. And, and truthfully, a bigger spiritual picture of all of us mm-hmm. who remain in unrepentant sin we're subject to ongoing bondage as well, a spiritual bondage. Sure. So Leviticus 25, 39 to 41 says, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sells themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be released and they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors. Because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear the Lord your God. Right. Now, the fact that Israelites were permitted to own foreign slaves for life, though this is a ubiquitous feature of the ancient world, it still remains a troubling fact for many of us today when we Mm -hmm. read the Bible in Western culture, a fact that causes us to say, are God's laws unjust? But I do think it's important to recognize here that slavery was an ever-present reality for the entire ancient world. And it certainly was not God's idea. It was at best God's concessions. He gave instructions to accommodate a practice that was universal in the ancient world and was a result of man's own sinfulness, certainly not a demonstration of God's own righteousness. And just to echo what God said, he's telling Israel, this is not my idea, but because you're doing this, fear me and do not rule over them ruthlessly. Yes. He is elevating the situation that pre-exists. Right. God is looking at something that is already happening around this nation that he is trying to set apart for a very specific purpose in his story. And he's taking what is a common practice and he's elevating it and bringing in, do this because you fear and worship me. Yeah. Kind of echoing back to those Ten Commandments. Don't don't be so proud that you have these slaves. You're not really allowed to have this. Right. Be an example in yes. this. And so I think it's important, like you pointed out in the beginning, the context of it is Israel sees this all around them. Yeah. And God is teaching them how to walk in real life yeah. while honoring him. And he's regulating this practice in a way that other law codes didn't. Because Mm -hmm. every ancient culture is engaging in the practice of slavery, but now God steps in and he brings more humaneness to what could be a very brutal institution. So just as an example, uh, the old Babylonian law code, which was the Code of Hammurabi, it sentenced a person to death if they harbored a runaway slave and gave them safety. But Deuteronomy 23, 15 and 16 says, If a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand them over to their master. Let them live among you wherever they like, in whatever town they choose, do not oppress them. See, God is giving safety to slaves when others would have been killed for harboring them. Sure. 
But for his people, he says, no, don't oppress the runaway slave. You take care of them and be good to them. So additionally, a practice that that we think of when we think of slavery as modern Americans Mm -hmm. is the kind of slavery that's been a horrible mar on our nation's history. Absolutely. And that was a slavery that resulted in people being kidnapped from their native land and sold as slaves and then sent to other continents where people made profits off of owning them. Sure. But in Scripture, to kidnap a person and to sell them into slavery was a crime that was punishable by death according to Exodus 21, 16 and Deuteronomy 24, 7. So we are not talking about the same kind of slavery that comes into our minds as 21st century Americans Mm -hmm. when we're reading about these slavery practices in Scripture because to do that was a capital crime. That was punishable by death to kidnap someone and to sell them into slavery. So in addition to just the different definition of slavery in that culture, Israelites were to always be kind to slaves, whether they were foreigners or not. They were to treat slaves, foreigners, and other less fortunate people with kindness. And God even gave the reason for this. Mm -hmm. He reminded them because you too were slaves. Right. Deuteronomy 15, 14 and 15 says, If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your winepress. Give to them as the Lord God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. And that is why I give you this command today. So as difficult as some of God's laws may be for us to understand, his heart for justice towards disadvantaged people is always revealed through his laws. And here Mm -hmm. are just a few more examples of that. Exodus 23, 9, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Exodus 22, 22, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. Exodus 22, 25, if you lend money to one of the people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. And Exodus 23, 6, do not deny justice to poor people in their lawsuits. See, while other ancient cultures around Israel did that, they denied justice to the disadvantaged, God's law was no respecter of persons, Mm -hmm. but granted justice to the rich and to the poor alike. It even forbid in God's law for people to accept a bribe, which was just another form of denying justice to the poor. Right. If you could pay for justice, then a poor person was deprived of justice. But God says in Exodus 23, 8, do not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds those who see it and twists the words of the innocent. Yeah. So there's a sharp contrast between God's laws and the other cultural laws surrounding Israel in these ancient times. But probably the most extraordinary thing about God's law that that speaks to its justice was the overarching purpose of the whole thing. See, other ancient law codes, like we talked about the Code of Hammurabi in the old Babylonian Empire, that purpose was to show the gods who they worshipped that the king was performing his duty of upholding justice and also to establish an orderly society to ensure the longevity of the king, of the human king. See, God created his law, according to Exodus 19.6, to create a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Mm-hmm. And although that covenant of laws, what Stacy shared, the Ten Commandments and then the chapters that follow, that was established at Sinai didn't last. Right. Because people continually 
broke fellowship with God, that law still pointed us toward an everlasting covenant and kingdom that Acts 2.21 says is open to all people who call on the name of the Lord, not just this one nation. Right. And it's where, like living stones, we're now being built up into a spiritual house. First Peter 2.5 says, to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices right. acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, the purpose of the law was to elevate the entire society and not to elevate them to look good by human standards, right? but to elevate them to a level of righteousness so that they could be in close proximity with the one God, right? not so that the king alone could look good to the many gods who they worshiped. Yeah, just to echo what you said, the purpose behind God's law and how all of these things that we've discussed point us towards this this spiritual house being built up by all of us in order to be uh, the thing that that the world looks at to see God that was exactly what God hoped to establish yeah. in the nation of Israel as a kingdom of priests that they would that the world would look the world that already was engaged in slavery that but yeah. that they would look at this people group and they would say there's something different about that yes what is that it's a holy God who wants to be in fellowship with his people. And so one of the things that we talked about that also points to our participation in this story that God of redemption that God is writing was that year of Jubilee, that seventh year of rest. Yes. And so that seventh year of rest, we uh, we see that pointing towards uh, what we call the Sabbath year or the year of Jubilee, which gives us God's view uh, it gives us a view of God's heart for us and the heart that he wants us to have for him. God wanted his people, the nation of Israel, to take time out of their work. So not only was the slave among them, the Israelite slave, the one who used that as currency to pay a debt or buy a good, not only was he released, him and his whole family, um, but also the, Israelite as a, the Israelites as a nation would rest from their work. They would give the land rest, they would not harvest, and they would show God their reliance on him and their dependence on him to provide for them by participating in this year of rest, and they called it the year of Jubilee. And so this has implications for us today the same trust that God expected from the nation of Israel, he also requires from us. You know, we, we are following behind God in, in his laws and in his ways, trusting that our joy will be made complete in him. Yes. That's our hope. Um, and that's why we walk in these ways. But while the laborer in the year of Jubilee would have been released there was an opportunity for him or his family to purchase back their freedom um, by paying yeah. a redemption price. And it would have been sort of prorated. It's like if you pay your credit card off in full within 12 months, you don't pay any of the interest. Yeah. So same kind of concept. Again, we want to, we really want to compare this to currency. Um, and that really just brings uh, all the feels when we talk about the price that Jesus paid for yes. us. So these, uh, these slaves would have been able to purchase back their freedom by paying the redemption price. So it had been yeah. prorated for however long until that year of Jubilee. So if they worked and saved and had the ability to buy back their redemption, they could have done so before the year of Jubilee. But the best part about all of this 
that we have to remember was God's idea and God's plan, God's decision and his judgment on how his people would live in society and be a model for the rest of the world. The best part was that it didn't matter if you had a small debt or a large debt. In the year of Jubilee, all of it was forgiven, great or small, and you received your inheritance again, and you were again in good standing. When we look at what Jesus has done and the price that he paid, he met the demand of sin, which is death. He paid that wage on our behalf because just like Tina said, no amount of work, we were never and will never be able to pay the redemption price, the the buyback, right, for our redemption. And so we participate in the year of Jubilee through the redemption and the the salvation that Jesus Christ brings for us and the inheritance that he will bring with him when he returns. But again, that year of Jubilee is a foreshadowing of the liberating work of Jesus Christ. And it, uh, it is reminiscent of the year of Jubilee by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 when he writes, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captive and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That year of the Lord's favor is this rest that we are talking about. We are entering in uh, to that rest. Now, again, what does this have to do with all of us? Uh, what does this have to do with, with whether or not God's laws are just or unjust? What God wanted from Israel was their trust. Yeah. Again, what he wants from all of us is for us to trust him yes. and to look at and assess why am I offended by God's law or yeah. his decisions or his judgments. And I, I want to read to you uh, what Jesus said about the law uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Isaiah just told us why he came. Yes. He comes to bind up the brokenhearted, yes. to free us from darkness, and to bring us into his rest, to bring in the year of the Lord's favor, to give us the good news, even those who are poor, to all the slaves, to all, all the lowly. Yeah. He brings us the good news. That's why he came. He says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But we have to remember that was a lot that Jesus just said. Big factors here. Don't think that this is why I've come. You already know why why yeah. I've come. I'm not here to get rid of the law. I'm here to fulfill the law. Right. And what was the purpose? Remember, the purpose of the law was to bring uh, Israel into fellowship. God wanted to dwell and be with them as they wandered through the wilderness. He wanted to tabernacle with them. Yes. Jesus wants the same thing. Jesus says, I fulfill the law. Jesus is the vehicle that brings us into fellowship with God, and he wants us to trust as we follow. As we walk out these laws and we follow him, this is our way of being living stones, being built up to be an example to the world around us to show them Jesus. And so now we're going to move into 
how we can look like this, these living stones, and thrive in the church. And the next example that Tina's going to walk us through is something that we've walked through before, yes, uh, building church and, and, and leading Bible study. And so Tina, take it away and take us through that next step. All right. So again, this is a space, what we've just looked at, that we often see God get a bad rap mm-hmm. because people are not understanding historical and cultural context. They're isolating his laws, reading very small passages of scripture instead of whole chapters, books, or the whole, the whole thing, thing, right? Uh, And so they look at that and they say, well, God advocates for slavery. And as they say it in their mind, they're picturing kidnapping people and selling them into slavery. Sure. And they're wrong because God is not advocating for that. That, again, is something God calls a capital offense. That's something he responded to. Yes, that's right. God is only providing ways for his people to pay their debts, which is essentially just working, Mm -hmm. which is a good thing. Right. And he's we also, all work every day. That's right. Mm-hmm. And he's also elevating the laws of the culture around Israel here that did approve of and make way for the mistreatment and oppression of people. So that's an Old Testament piece. A place in the New Testament, though, mm-hmm. that I think God often gets the same bad rap for being unjust or oppressive is in the treatment of women, Mm -hmm. especially in Paul's writings. So this is definitely one we've walked through. I don't know if you remember this, but when we were first moving from our mobile church season into being a church that was in a building and more people were starting to learn about our home church and reach out considering visiting, I remember we got an email that asked the question. It was from a woman. I'm thinking about coming, but I want to know, are you complementarian or egalitarian. (laughs) And I remember calling you and saying, do you know what that means? (laughs) And I remember saying, no, I have no idea. (laughs) I didn't know what it meant either. But we learned after that. Yeah, we did. And what we have also learned since then is this is a very hot button issue Mm -hmm. in the church, in the modern church. Is Paul writing things that are oppressive toward women? Mm -hmm. In other words, are God's laws unjust? And I want to just read you a hot button passage that gets brought up in this discussion, and it's 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14. Here Paul writes, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So for context here, Paul is writing to Timothy, giving corrective instructions for the church at Ephesus. And there were several things that were going wrong in this church, and it was because false teachers had infiltrated their assembly and they were leading people away from the truth. We know that because just the chapter before this, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.7, they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Now, in Rome, where we find this church of Ephesus, right. this is a Gentile congregation, and so they are living in a Roman culture. And in this culture, girls would have, at best, received a primary school education, just a very early education. But beyond those very first years, education was focused on masculine values, especially things like rhetoric and public speaking. And so higher learning was only reserved for men. Mm -hmm. Women received domestic training. They were taught how to run a household. 
Now, that was the Gentile culture, the culture of this church at Ephesus. But what we just read there about these false teachers who had infiltrated the church was that they were trying to be teachers of the law. Mm-hmm. That would be teachers of the Jewish law. Right. So the Jewish culture of this time would have been equally antagonistic toward women. One influence over first century Jewish culture would have been the book of Sirach, which was Jewish wisdom literature from the intertestamental period, which is that 400 year span from the end of the book of Malachi in the Old Testament to the beginning of the book of Matthew in the New Testament. And in that writing, women are presented in an overwhelmingly negative view. They're seen as generally wicked and their sole purpose is just to please their husband and they really have no social standing. So In a society where women are not counted worthy of an education by the Gentile culture of Rome or by the Jewish culture and the Jewish traditions, Paul here is seeking to restore order to Mm -hmm. a church that's being misled by teachers who are misusing the Old Testament law, essentially by teachers who are saying God's law is unjust. Sure. And so this teaching, many find it offensive because they focus on the command to be quiet more than they do the permission to learn. Paul says, I don't allow a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. So what does that kind of teaching or learning actually look like? Well, to not teach or learn in that way would mean that a woman has to teach or learn in humility, Mm -hmm. not assuming authority over the male headship in the church. And that's an important piece that I don't want to get lost here because there is an order in the church and that's not a cultural concession. Mm -hmm. Paul allowing women to learn, his elevating women Mm -hmm. is, is a strike against the culture. Just like God saying that if someone kidnaps a person and sells them into slavery, that's a strike against the culture in the old Testament because women did not have that privilege. But Paul goes on to point toward Adam and Eve Mm -hmm. toward the created order to show that Male headship in the church is not a cultural concession. It actually is the created order that God had in mind. So what this means is women are given a privilege. They need to be quiet and humble, Mm -hmm. but they're given a privilege that they can learn now Mm -hmm. in the general assembly alongside the men. And I see it so much like the rest of the law that is uh, these the, it puts these boundaries in place for us so that we can stay in fellowship with God. Because when you're following God, you want his presence. You want yes. his favor. And if you want that, you have to stay within the bounds of where he, he is located. And the law helps us do that. And specifically here, when a woman is, when, when a church is following that biblical order or a home is following yeah. that biblical order, and the fact that he points back to Adam and Eve is uh, just the cherry on top because what did Eve do? Paul reminds the listeners, he reminds the yeah. reader that she sinned and caused Adam to sin. And so what was the result of that? God said, you're going to desire yes. desperately to rule over your husband. God is allowing us ways that we can thrive that you're going to talk to us about in a second. But uh, I see this as a form of grace. We get to participate even though God knows this is a boundary we, we might want to cross. Right, right. He does. He gives us a privilege in this. So here's what women can't do. Are God's laws unjust? Is God giving instructions that are oppressive to women? Well, here's what women cannot do. 
they can't usurp authority over male leadership in the church. Right. And what we mean by that is God does give a leadership structure for his church. While all of us are called to be disciples of Christ, all of us are called to be disciple makers within the structure of the church. God is a God of order and he does give offices for the governance and oversight and protection of mm-hmm. the church and its doctrine. And that position is elders and they are by definition men. Some scripture references here, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, Titus 1, 5 through 9, and 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. Now, I do want to stick a note right here that just because God says that this position of elder in his church is for a man, this doesn't justify those men oppressing or abusing right. or sexually misusing women. And I think that when we question the validity or the justness of God's law, it's because we're looking at the implementation Mm -hmm. of his law or the perversion of his law Mm -hmm. by sinful man Mm -hmm. who would use it to oppress and abuse and pervert justice. Right. An elder, by definition, in those scripture references I just gave, is a man who has a very high moral character, who walks in total integrity. So a man who would misuse Mm -hmm. God's role of headship for men in the church against women to oppress or abuse them is not qualified for that office anyway. No, and he's headed for God's judgment and justice. Yeah, he's no more qualified to be an elder than a woman is. That's right. If that's what he's doing. So that's what women can't do. Mm -hmm. They can learn. They can be a part of the assembly. They can even teach in the proper order because we find in Titus that women are to teach other women the word of God. Mm -hmm. But it's to be done with a level of humility that doesn't seek to thwart or overturn God's created order. Right. Now, We know that Paul is not communicating an unjust law of God. Paul is not a misogynist. He's Mm -hmm. not against women because if he is, then the rest of his writing doesn't make sense. Right. And I want to just point you here toward Romans chapter 16. There, Paul is giving personal greetings, people who he wants uh, the, the recipients of the letter to say hello to. And he names 27 people and eight of these are women. And you can just read this section of Romans verses 1 through 15 in chapter 16, but here are the women who Paul names along with what they did or what their position was. Right. He calls out Phoebe, a deacon in the church in Sincre, Priscilla, Paul's co-worker in Christ Jesus, Mary, who worked hard for the Lord, Junia, who was outstanding among the apostles, Tryphena and Tryphosa, who worked hard in the Lord, Persis, who worked very hard in the mm-hmm. Lord, and Olympus, who was a sister of Nerus. So women are not oppressed by God. Women have this freedom in Christ to use spiritual gifts that God has given them for the glory of the Father and for the building up of Christ's church. But that service to the church, even that leadership that they're given, those roles of authority, must maintain a respect for God's created order, where the governing authority over the church is the eldership and ultimately the head of the church, the head of every leader, is Christ himself. Right. Absolutely. And that, I think that freedom that God gives to us in spite of the fall yeah. is we should view that as liberating and as a gift yes. instead of something that is offensive. But it just points us right back to where we began in Proverbs chapter 21. Yes. What, what do we produce within us when we read of God's judgment or read of God's decisions yes. or read of God's order, does it produce in us joy because we are 
walking towards righteousness yeah. or does it produce in us uh, terror mm. because of wickedness or because of evil in our lives? The good thing is if we will self-assess, we know we learned last week that wickedness must be driven out, that there is a penalty and a payment for every sin and sin demands a death. Yes. That is its payment. And if that is what is welled up in us when we read about God's judgment or we look at God's decisions and we are offended or uncomfortable or just unwilling to submit to it for whatever the reason, the good news is the other purpose of the law, uh, Paul also teaches us that the purpose of the law, the benefit of the law rather, is that it exposes that in us. Yes. It allows us to see what is preventing us from this close fellowship that God desires and that we would we need to desire. The law gives us that ability to do it and then Jesus teaches us how to drive out wickedness, how to drive out sin, how to put sin to death in us and to align ourselves with the payment that he made on our behalf, the purchase back, that redemption price that he paid for us, and we can do that, and we can step through Scripture to find all yes. of those pieces. But what we want to communicate most is if this is something that maybe someone is listening for the first time, or they've been a believer for many years, but they've tripped over this, yes, and they've doubted God's goodness, um, because there are plenty of things that we read uh, from, the, from especially the Old Testament, that we just go, Man, I wonder why. Yeah. I, we're in a read through right now with several ladies and one one lady is reading it for the very first time and there was an account in Genesis and she said, "I got to be honest, I was just shaking my head about that." But what we hope to communicate is if we question God's justice, we can look at the purpose and the context to understand it better. And hopefully it will produce joy in us because we will want righteousness instead of wickedness so that we can be in fellowship with him. A lot of the things that we have uh, put together for today's episode to step us through this, to step through a lot. I mean, we've walked a lot of scripture today in order to unpack this question. But most of it came from right here, from Tina's resource that she's put together for us, Step Into Scripture, the, the purpose of this podcast, uh, to connect all of these Old Testament uh, truths with New Testament reality. Uh, similarly, from the example today, how Jesus has fulfilled this law and is now our vehicle yeah. and our path towards God. Uh, that's what we hope that you have connected from all of this. If you don't have this resource, now is the time to get it. You can pick it up on Amazon. It was published by Renew.org. I encourage it. Pick it up. Make an open-ended commitment to read the entire thing, and you will be blessed. You will produce joy when you look at God's decisions and judgment, and you will be well on your way towards walking in fellowship with God. Thank you, Stacy. That welcome. was a wonderful endorsement. I'm so glad. So guys, thank you for joining us for this episode today. Don't miss next week because we are going to dive into the lives of some cryptic and mysterious characters in the Old Testament. I am so excited. I am too. And you don't want to miss that. So we look forward to seeing you back next week. Thanks for being with us. See ya.